Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kurt Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your frequently overloaded host, Ben Siders. That's me. <laughs> and the other guy is, as always, Kurt Damon. That's Kurt Damon. He's got the Enterprise, and my mic should not be overloading. As, as you know from our last episode, if you listen to it, um, we continue to be challenged technically. The, the problem at, at the root is that I have a microphone that can pick up sounds from Indiana, uh, from, from here. Uh, and and Kirk, Kirk has his lips like one inch away from his microphone and it barely picks him up at all. So Kirk's leaning in, I'm leaning out. We're going to hope that between the two of us that this we can combine this and make this sound halfway decent. Yeah, so. We'll see if this thing will work or not, so we're going to have to put some other technical challenge to yeah. be solved here. If, if this doesn't work, you may just have to suck it up and get like a, a good bite directional microphone and and use a smaller room to record in so anyway today we're going to talk about uh actually not the topic we teased on our last episode we're not quite ready for that one yet but we're going to go into something we did tease several episodes ago and that is the class i think it's a class action lawsuit or if not it's at least a uh multi-party it's multi-party lawsuit it's class action because it's you're you're talking primarily music owners yeah it feels like class class. action it might just be that there's just a lot of plaintiffs um Uh, but it's the lawsuit against uh, Roblox arising out of their use of music on their online platform. And uh, kind of similar to our last episode, Kirk and I are going to dive a little bit into, um, I guess I call it nuts and bolts, a little bit of litigation. We're going to look at what the allegations are, uh, what, you know, what the basis of them are, and then maybe more interestingly, what Roblox's defenses are, because they have now filed an answer, which is what we were waiting for to talk about this, so we can see what their defenses are. Yeah, and I think the key with this thing to keep in mind, this is going to be a very legal uh, podcast we're going to do. I mean, we are really going to get into the nuts and bolts of case files of law of things along those lines and i think the the real thing to keep in mind about this is if you know you were looking for one of our more geeky you know discussions of star wars well i hadn't done my mommy episode that just came out about that this is not going to be this you know yes we're talking about a geeky case but we're really going to dive into some real deep you know like 1l law school stuff yeah absolutely if and uh, i think some of you guys like this stuff uh i it, you know what it reminds me of is D uh, rules lawyering and if those <laughs> of you who follow our, our twitter uh, count. First of all, if you don't, what's wrong with you? But uh, g- get on Twitter and check. I posted a, a D&D cartoon that my brother-in-law sent me. Not a cartoon, a little skit that my brother-in-law sent me of some characters in D&D who stopped for rules lawyering. They had a judge. They had an advocate. It was it was really funny and really well done. Um, so check that out. But this is that kind of thing. This is this is the, the real-life version of D&D rules lawyering. So... Uh, as let's talk. About, let's talk briefly about what Roblox is. I'm sure most of you know, but Roblox is what what I guess Kirk and I would probably call a video game development platform, where you make basically cloud games other people can play. Yeah. Uh, but I think Roblox calls it more. Uh, more. They, I think they use the word experience. Yeah, and I think a lot of it's. In some sense, a lot of things that are made on it aren't necessarily really games. Now, I think it's most known for its games. And definitely, just as the thing, my kids are addicted to Roblox. They love it. Um, And it's most of what they play on it are games. But a lot of them are more simulation games. They're not what you'd call arcade games, but it definitely has arcade games. They're low graphics quality for the most part. They're very blocky, kind of Minecraft-esque. Almost Lego-esque. Yeah, and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of the games are just... You know, almost gathering stuff and doing something with yeah. it. Um, I know, you know, a lot of the ones are like, hey, you know, how many pets can you acquire, you know, and things yeah. like that. And then what can you do with the pets? And, you know, the ultimate thing is that you can get on it and ride it around the universe, which is full of people gathering pets. Like, yeah, but there's no other, yeah. there's no point, there's no goal, there's no way to win, there's no win yeah. condition. There's none of the elements you traditionally have in a game. And this maybe is a topic for Charlotte, but I suspect the reason that Roblox calls it an experience instead of a game is false advertising laws. Yeah, and they're, they're very sandboxy, too. I think yeah. that's the other thing with it is, in some sense, these things are not games in the idea, like there is, you know, a party to be defeated, there's a win condition, there's anything like that. This is literally just a true sandbox. I mean, even Minecraft ultimately has the Ender Dragon, you know, if you want to, you know, finish the game. Um, But this is something where you really just are given sort of this digital sandbox with certain rules in it. You go in and you can play inside those rules. And again, a lot of it seems to be acquisition of stuff, you know. The interesting thing about it, and I sort of put this, is it's, and, and I've had this comment repeatedly about a lot of games, it's sort of the same way that, like, Civilization is the most fun before you figure out how to do anything. Yeah, you know, Minecraft is the most fun the first night. Like it, it's fun when you, you with these sort of you know open-ended sandbox games when you don't know how to do anything. And as you learn to do things, 
they almost get less fun. It's kind of like a good TV show. Like the first season of Lost was just brilliant, but the more I learned about <laughs> the more I learned about the world of Lost, the less interesting it got. Yeah, well, there's also a day, just to talk about the Lost. I don't know if you've seen it, but there was when they did just the reunion for it. They just did a discussion where they reanalyzed the finale and the idea of was the finale a good episode? And it's actually a very interesting sort of discussion of the idea that we kind of all missed the point of yeah. what the finale was, um, and it's. Lost is one of those things that uh, we could do probably a podcast and maybe we should on sort of the analysis of Lost and certain older science fiction that had the unique thing about Lost is Lost was the second TV show that really did the idea of ongoing narrative across seasons and the the episodes were in order what was the first one? Babylon 5 did that come uh, out before Deep Space Nine? Oh, yeah. Deep, did it? Okay. Uh, if I was out when um, Next Generation was still out. And basically well, so was Deep Space Nine. Yeah. They had a little bit of overlap. Yeah, there's some overlap. And Deep Space Nine kind of came out. There's a lot of comments that Deep Space Nine came out in response to Avalon 5. And I watched it in college. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's, yeah that's right. I, that's my reflection um, as well. But, you know, the idea that you sort of have these multi-seasonal things. And the one I always remembered from the coming with Babylon 5 being the sort of uniqueness of it was that I think it's the third season was nominated for a Hugo Award. Mm-hmm. Because you could, you could nominate for a Hugo Award a season or intercon- an episode or interconnected episodes, like a two-part episode. And when they nominated, they said the third season is one interconnected episode. Yeah. And that was kind of a unique thing. And I'm not remember if it won or not. I think it might have won. But I know it got nominated. And this concept of the idea that you could have an entire season of a show and, in fact, the entire run of a show be one story, which is constant now. Um, it's the it's, standard for television yeah. anymore. You know, we finished WandaVision. My, my kids and I just started watching Loki last night, um, which looks super fun. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. Um, but it's one of those where, you know, like, those are clearly interconnected. Like, yeah. you have to watch the show as an order or else they don't make any sense. The other one we just finished, and for those of you with kids, and Ben, I haven't had a chance to talk to you about this, we've just finished The Mysterious Benedict Society. I didn't even heard that of that. That show is brilliant. If you guys <laughs> have Disney+, Plus, um, and you have kids, that show is really pretty brilliant um, as to what it is. It's weird, because it's set in kind of a funky steampunk universe. I'll I'd, I'd be into that. Um, but it's essentially your classic sort of mystery, you know, kids, kids as heroes, stuff like that. What's cool about it is... There's all sorts of stuff that makes no sense. There's this real sort of very high-tech, you know, like dichotomy with things. So you have, like, you know, massive amounts of hydropower being generated simultaneously with, like, the, you know, building of, you know, they're using peregrine falcons for purposes of communicating and Morse code, (laughs) like, using flashlights. Like, it's this weird sort of, like, very high-tech world combined with this exceedingly low-tech world. And there's even weirdness around the... um, the sort of the, the social norms of the world. So one of the big things is every time they have meals, there are these outrageously complex multi-course tasting menus. But like th- these are like in log cabins and like camping and stuff like that. And so you have these really kind of weird dichotomies to what it is. I'm assuming in the story it probably makes more sense in the book. But it's an exceedingly interesting show. Uh, the first episode is great. Just the basic concept of the first episode of how you get into the Mysterious Benedict Society is great and who the characters are. It's got a few places that are a little rough um, and a few things that are kind of like pushing the envelope of, of stuff. But overall, it's just really cool. There's also a lot of really good acting in it. Um, the, you know, a few of the uh, the kids that you have with it, because it's mostly centered around kids, uh, a few of them are designed to be just people you hate. And you just hate them. You can't stand the way they're acting. Like, and they do such a good job in conjunction. That's just good writing. Yeah, this is what TV's missing now is good writing. It's really good writing. And again, it's really good acting. I mean, people really play the parts to a T. The people who are supposed to be just annoying are just annoying. Um, and stuff like that. So, yeah. Well, back to Roblox. Um, so, the the way that these, these experiences, we'll call them, we're, we're going to say games, but just understand that we mean the experiences. Yeah. As Kirk said, um, it's kind of a sandbox thing. You get sort of a blank world. Um, if you've ever developed a, a video game using like a, like Game Salad or a Unity or one of these like game development programs, you don't really need to program. You don't need to know like how to write source code to yeah. use it. Uh, anybody can get on and kind of make a game. I've played around with it a little bit. It's not too terribly difficult to learn. And so you have a, a ton, tons and tons of, of experiences on there. The closest one I put with it is Tinker. So if any of you guys, again, have kids yeah. who use Tinker, if you use Tinker, that's kind of a good example of sort of what it is. But it's it's not built as a learning platform like yeah. Tinker is. It's, it's definitely more than like a scratch, but uh, something shy of like a Unity. Yeah. Um, so basically, it, it's, it's easy to do. And in connection with it, you can upload music to be part of your game. 
and you can set triggers for when the music plays, uh, things of that nature. Um, like most platforms that you can upload things to, as far as I can tell, um, there's no real check on, on whether the thing you're uploading is something that you have the right or the authority legally to <laughs> upload. Um, I don't even know if that's technically possible. I think it's possible to do at least some screening, but um, I get the impression that they're not really doing any. Uh, and also, like virtually every online platform, the terms of use specifically say, thou shalt not infringe copyrights. <laughs> yeah, as you expect every term of use to say. I mean, that's, you know, in anything that's going to say uploading this, they're going to basically put it on you and say, don't do stuff that's illegal. Uh, and they typically yeah. make you give what's called a warranty and representation. That's where you say, I guarantee, I, I'm going to assure you that I have not, and I'm going to assure you that I will not violate this rule. And if you breach that warranty, it's grounds to terminate your yeah. access to the to the, to the the platform. Let's actually use that as a start right there as to sort of, you know, what are these legal terms and things yeah. like that. Rep and warranty, which you'll hear all the time, right? It's sort for representation and warranty. There's actually three. There's reps, warranties, and covenants. Covenants, yeah. So yeah. The, the thing you bump into in virtually every contract, and virtually every contract has representations and warranties, reps and warranties, though you usually hear people say it, um, which will say something usually along the lines of, I, as the signatory of this contract, represent and warrant the follow. Basically, what those things are is you're going to agree that those following things are true. Yep. That's effectively what it says. And to the extent that you have now just lied, those things are not true. Or if you're just wrong, whether you lie or wrong. not. Well, effectively, it means you lie because yeah. you stated they are true, and yet they are not think, true. So I don't like the word lie because to me it implies an intent to deceive. That would be okay. fraud as opposed to just plain, <laughs> I believe this was true, but it turned out I was wrong. wrong so yeah. representations are usually conditions or assertions of fact um, that are true before entering into the contract. So a representative warrant. True. Yeah. So you may say, I represent that I have authority to enter into this contract. It may turn out that I didn't, but I am at least saying that I did. And then a warranty is a condition that you are assuring will remain true during the contract. I warrant that the product will is is going to uh, you know to hold up to normal wear and tear for 90 days or yeah. something like that. Or it doesn't infringe yeah. anybody else's patents. Yeah. Now, you, you would represent that it was made properly and that it doesn't violate anybody else's IP rights, and you want to warrant that that's the case. Uh, and then a covenant is a, a promise to do or refrain from doing something during the contract or even after. Yep. So that's sort of the difference between among those three. Yeah, and the end, the real key with sort of representations and warranties is that there's things that basically there's no way to know. So yeah. the example is is that if Ben is holding himself out as being somebody who can sign this contract on behalf of a corporation, let's say, I have no way of knowing that. I can't necessarily yeah. review everything about the con the corporation, know what his standard is. I'm so in I the best position to know that, so yeah. I should be the one that stands behind that statement. Yeah, so basically what it is is that I force him to represent and warrant that he is indeed authorized to do that. So in the extent that it's not true, in the end, he was not authorized to enter the contract, it's on his head that yep. he wasn't able to do it. It's not my fault that he wasn't able to do it and I didn't check it. It's, I did check it, he told me he was, and I forced him to agree to the, the fact that that was a true statement. So for something like Roblox, there's usually a rep or a warranty where they say something like, uh, all of the, the user content that I upload will not infringe or misappropriate the intellectual property or other proprietary yeah. rights of any third party. Very, very common clause. Yeah, these are common in even like more commercial contracts. You commonly yeah. would say, like, you know, hey, if I'm going to sell a product, I represent warrant that it doesn't infringe a patent. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, those are things you definitely can have, you know, and, and it's not surprising with what it is. And part of it is, again, because it's the platform doesn't necessarily be able to police this. So yep. they're basically saying you have to police it on your own. You're going to tell us this is true. And if you breach the warranty, the remedy generally is that the contract can be terminated. Yeah, the contract it's can be terminated, terminated or is void to begin with yep. sometimes. Yeah, so uh, so that's that's how we deal with these things. Uh, you know, a, a platform like Roblox or YouTube or really anybody, they, they have no way to know in advance what you're going to upload. Uh, once it's there, they you know they would probably tell you that it's practically impossible for them to police everything. I know they tell you that. That's what they told Congress when Congress asked them these <laughs> questions. Um, and so we rely on these warranties and reps. We kind of rely on people to find stuff that's out there that shouldn't be there and say, hey, you can't have that. Uh, we use something called the DMCA, which we talked about on this podcast before, that gives content owners the right to go to a platform like a Roblox or really anything and say, hey, this is my song. Uh, I don't think this person has permission to use it. You need to take it down. And then the platform can take it down, and then they can't be sued. Uh, this balance was struck back in the 90s. There's a lot of debate right now about whether the balance is still correct or not. We're going to set that aside for a separate episode. Um, more interesting is that the music industry has uh, recently reached their breaking point with Roblox, and they have now sued Roblox for copyright infringement. Um, and as Kirk and I have talked about many times on this podcast, uh, copyright infringement is about copying. <laughs> um, 
it's not about attribution, although that's an important, you know, an, an important aspect of, of protecting your rights. Make people make sure people know that you do have a copyright. Yeah, and attribution is actually an element of the copyright law, but it's not primarily what you're talking yeah. about when you're talking. It about used copyright. to be necessary to have your copyright. It's not anymore. Yep. So uh, to infringe a copyright, uh, you have to uh, copy, or in this case, uh, publicly distribute, uh, display, or perform the work. So if you have music being uploaded and then Roblox as the platform, they have a copy on their server. They didn't put it there. Somebody else did, but they have it. Uh, but then when somebody plays the game, they're making a copy and they're streaming it over the internet to that person. That is a public distribution, I think, pretty clearly. Yep. Likewise, it is a public performance because anybody who's on the game can get access to it. So uh, there's there's not really any any real doubt that this, uh, assuming they don't have the rights to do this, the people who uploaded it, and assuming Roblox doesn't have the rights, um, then it's definitely a copyright infringement. So that is what the music industry alleged. They said it is both direct infringement, meaning Roblox themselves is responsible for copyright infringement. They also argued indirect and vicarious copyright infringement, neither of which I am as familiar with. Uh, so, Kirk, what do you know about those? So, I know a little bit about it. Um, I know the, the primary concept that I'm pulling primarily from patent law here, and actually indirect infringement in patent law, but I believe it's the same in copyright law and vicarious, is basically saying, you know, yes, the infringement is not being necessarily caused by the platform. It's being caused by somebody indirectly via the platform, yeah. so the best way of putting it. Um, and that person is, you know, the, usually when you require something to be indirect, it's it's not that it's just being done by somebody sort of completely outside the control. It's being done for some purpose that is being encouraged um, or is they're contributing to. Those are sort of the best ways to sort of put it. Uh, my curious, I believe, is they have to actually um, gain from it as well. I think that's the thing sort of from the outside purpose. Yeah, we're, we're looking over our, our notes here because I did actually, uh, we didn't prepare our normal note sheet for this, but I, we did uh, look into this over the summer. <laughs> so the contributory or the indirect standard is that the company has to intentionally induce somebody else to directly infringe. Yeah, which in patent law is called inducement to infringe and is actually a separate. Uh, yeah. And then vicarious is, is a little more nebulous. Um, this is where you have the ability to police or prevent, and you just decide not to. You kind of yeah. know that it's going on, or you should know, and you just don't. But I think there also requires you to be in some benefit from vicarious. I think that you can't just be that it's going on. You need to acquire some benefit from vicarious yeah. infringement. You know, for example, I know there is copyright infringement occurring in the world right now, but I'm not gaining. Yeah, we all it. run into it every day, but yeah. we're not we're not uh, we're not providing the environment in which it takes place yeah. and then benefiting from it in some fashion. So those are the three uh, basic basic claims. Th those I, I don't think are all that interesting. It's about I mean, what else are you going to say? You know, yeah, um, it's your standard alleged copyright infringement, particularly in something like this where it's a platform where we not we're not going after the actual person posting it. Now now part of the thing you look at and say, well, why are they not going after the individual? users because those people who are physically posting yeah. the copyrighted material and therefore committing the direct copyright infringement to the extent that it is a direct copyright infringement why are they just targeting them and the answer to it is is they don't know who they are yeah there's no way yeah there's no way for them to know who they are because they've all made these games they're probably all under you know aliases you know pseudonyms in conjunction with the game they all have user accounts which are entirely controlled by roblox there's no way for the music industry to know who they are yeah. um, and so from that point of view they can go after them independently and you'll see that occasionally in pleadings where they'll plead like the following party and does one through 500 yeah. basically saying there are at least 500 people that are doing this we don't know who they are we expect it, to figure it should it out. be noted it is possible to figure this out it's just expensive and difficult you can file a federal lawsuit which copyright infringement would be uh you can file it against uh unnamed john does or jane does and just you can say all i have is this username i know they're on roblox at this time i know they uploaded this file uh, and then you can uh, petition the court for early discovery to figure out who they are because you've still got to serve them at some point. Um, that process uh, uh, can be used to get Roblox to give you the IP address, the information Roblox has at least. They may or may not have a username. Um, I have made accounts on Roblox. I don't think they make you give them anything, kind of like Reddit. So uh, it's possible that all Reddit has is a username, a login time, and the IP address they came from. With that IP address, you can do some internet research. You can find out what ISP had that IP address at that time. Then you can go file a subpoena against them to find out who the person who has that account is. But there are some federal laws uh, that, that protect that anonymity. It's not always that easy to do. And by the time you go off through, through all this, it is entirely possible that the logs are gone and it's a dead end. Yeah. And that's really the sort of key here. I think is what you're seeing in conjunction with this targeting is it's, 
you know, yes, this could be done. It is extraordinarily expensive. It's also, quite frankly, very hard to get everyone. Yeah. So you're going to have some selective enforcement to the extent that they go after individuals in conjunction yeah. with this. It's the individuals they can find. Somebody who has, you know, a altering, I, you know, IP address is harder to find than yeah. somebody who doesn't. What, what uh, do you do when the IP address is, belongs to some uh, some net block in India? Yeah. Okay, I, I can issue a subpoena to an IP. They don't have to answer it. You know, yeah. I, the U.S. courts have no jurisdiction over India. And that's and that's really sort of the thing. So what you're doing here is they're going after the sort of centralized party here, yeah. and they're going after them saying, one, you directly did it, but they're also going after them saying, yes, but you indirectly did it. That's the reason you have these these ideas of contributory infringement, indirect infringement, inducement to infringe where these things come from is this idea basically saying they're only doing it because of you. So basically, you know, yes, it may be them who's doing it, but they're only doing it because of you. And so because of you is the reason we yep. need to shut down. And this is the core of the whole dispute over who really should bear the burden here. Uh, I've been involved over the last uh, 18 months or so um, in kind of uh, working with various trade organizations uh, in providing uh, remarks and notes to Congress as, uh, as they consider revising these laws. The content owners find the burden of them having to police all this very onerous uh, because the scale of the, of the infringement, at least in the perception, is vast. Uh, but the platforms, you know, the, the YouTubes of the world say, you know, we're getting millions and millions of takedown requests. The burden yeah. on us is vast, too. So um, there's, there's a lot of conversation about uh, how this should be managed. We, we should note, Kirk and I have talked about this before, too. It didn't used to be like this. It used to be easier to manage this, and the balance that was struck was different. Uh, in the olden days, by which I mean the 90s, <laughs> the, 90s yeah. the, the, the balance was different. Uh, it's because content was tied to a physical medium. You had a point of sale, and you could just tax the person who was going to infringe at that point of sale. So we had DART, which is a law that like eight people know about, I'll speak <laughs> two of them. Um, and then we have uh, the, uh, the private copying levy on data CDs, which we talked about before. You know, that was how we dealt with that, and it, it eliminated the burden to police because when you bought the CD to do the infringement with, one, you as the person doing the infringing, you got immunity. Uh, but you also paid a little money that compensated the music industry for the songs you're about yeah. to steal. You, you basically did it. What they basically did is they handled copyright infringement via physical media. And and that was the thing is when we then disconnected, and yeah. it really was in the early 2000s when we started to disconnect. So it was Napster that really kicked it off. It was Napster that really kicked off. MP3s in some respects really yeah. did just generally, and then Napster kind of did it, you know, as a specific, and then YouTube. But, you know, the, the comment that this is vast is not surprising. I remember hearing a statistic a number of years ago. I have no idea if it's still true. But commenting about, you know, the amount of material uploaded on YouTube, that if you were to take absolutely every minute of content that has been broadcast on broadcast television, since broadcast television was invented till this immediate moment, that amount of content will be posted on YouTube in the next seven minutes. That's probably true. Um, and that is true every minute. And so it's one of those things to sort of keep in mind that, you know, you know, we're talking about the vast idea of a vast amount of content. Just the sheer scale of this is one of the arguments with it. That there is so much content going up. It's very, very hard to police it um, because of just the timing. And I remember like there's, and I think we may have talked about the show. I know there's a, uh, I think it's a Pandora streaming service you can get where yeah. you will only listen to songs that have never been listened never to. Um, you know, I need I, to find that, by the way. If anybody has seen that, let us know. I want to find I that. I don't know if it still exists anymore and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, it's one of those where there's, there's so much... That, that's the argument by these platforms, is there's so much going up on these platforms, they literally cannot police it, yep. because the amount of time it takes to police it is more than the amount of time that they have. So, you know, you look at it and say, well, it takes 10 seconds to do the policing, that's great, but you have to do one every two seconds. Yeah. Um, and so, therefore, you can't maintain it. So, that's the argument in a lot of these things with this. And Roblox is in effectively the same position as YouTube, although I, I think you could argue that in some sense their job might be easier. You know, YouTube just gets a video file with audio in the background, but with Roblox, I think you have to upload the music as a file. So it ought to be possible to isolate the music from the rest of it and figure out what it is. And one thing to keep in mind, a lot of the, the platforms YouTube, I think, included in conjunction with this, try to resolve these issues using essentially AI systems. Yeah, and YouTube has the, 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 the content ID system. Yep. Like A lot of this has been fixed by the industry on their own. And one of the major motivation, one of the major motivating reasons to do that is to avoid the government getting involved. There's a reason that the uh, uh, the MPAA rates movies and 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 not the Department of Commerce, <laughs> yeah. you know. Well, and then one of the things to keep in mind in conjunction with the idea of these these sort of private solutions with it, there's also a lot of complaints about these solutions. It catches the wrong things. It catches things which are licensed, and they can be very very hard to deal with it. 
that's the other side of the time problem. The, the yeah. other side of the time problem is, well, the only way to be able to be able to effectively police this is to use artificial intelligence, which necessarily has an it's error have rate. Problems, yeah. And to the extent it has an error rate, which is also higher than the amount of time it takes to deal with it, that creates a new problem on the other side. You also have a balancing with, you know, there's, there's a handful of huge platforms, but the vast majority of online service providers, you know, something like a local library or something like that, they, they, they don't... They don't get a lot of these requests, so if they have some obligation to maintain some expensive software system to scan for things, that places a burden on them that they probably can't afford. So um, it's it's really kind of a, a tricky problem to solve. So just just know that that conversation is going on. Uh, Congress is interested in looking at it and revising the DMCA. Nothing's really going on with that right now, but we'll probably be back talking about this topic yeah. within the next 12 months. Well, so let's jump back into sort of what we had. So the first thing we had here is a, is a pleading. Yes, and, and a pleading or a complaint. Let's talk about what a pleading or a complaint is. That's how we start a lawsuit. Yeah, it's basically, it's the start of a lawsuit. So when somebody says they've been sued, that means that there's a pleading yeah. or a complaint. That means somebody wrote a piece of paper that says, you're done wrong, and they filed it with the court. They filed it with the court. And that, that, that has risen to the level of something which can be filed in the court. Yeah. There are there are requirements of things that have to be filed in the court. You have to usually pay a fee in order to file it. It has to be on paper, for yes. example. And the standard is absurdly low. You can yes. literally, people have done things like sued God. <laughs> um, uh, people have uh, tried to sue all kinds of, you know, people have tried to sue in nature. Um, you can you can literally, I mean, physically file anything you want as long as you can get to a court and follow the procedures to file yep. it. There's really not much more required beyond filling in a cover sheet. Yeah, it has to be a cover sheet. It doesn't be written. That's one of the things you, to keep yeah. in mind. A plea almost always has to be written. It cannot be done orally, so there's a record of it. And again, there usually is a fee. Not yeah. always, but usually a fee. And you can fee. get that way if you have informa pauperis, uh, pauperis. Yeah. It's one of those Latin, French things we have. But basically, I'm poor and I can't afford a fee. They'll waive it if you can, if you can establish yeah, that. Yeah, if you can establish it. Um, but basically, at that point in time, you have filed a lawsuit. One of the key things to keep in mind is when this thing is filed, a lawsuit exists at the instant this is filed. That lawsuit now must be resolved. Yep. It cannot leave the court without being Once resolved. the court stamps it, it's in. Yeah. It's got a number. It's a lawsuit. So when we say this idea, if I take you know a single sheet of paper and I write down, I am suing Ben because I can't stand working with him anymore in this podcast and I want him to go away, yeah. that is a lawsuit as soon as I file it. You can look at it and say, that's a ludicrous lawsuit. Yes, it is. Yep. Uh, would it ever win? No, it has absolutely no chance. But no standing. Has, no case or controversy. Yeah. <laughs> but it still has to be dealt with by the, the court. The court has to take it seriously, just like yes. when people sue God. You have to issue uh, the, uh, the uh, is it a subpoena? No, it's a summons. Summons. It's to issue the summons and the sheriff has to go to try to find God. And in that particular case, the sheriff returned it and said, after due search, I cannot find God in this county. Yeah. <laughs> and so therefore, so it's therefore, a great statement. I, I, <laughs> can't, I can't serve him. He, and so what are you going to do? Yeah. And so um, therefore, and that's the thing with it is it's, you know, a lot of these cases, you look at it and say, yes, they end quickly. The defendant never even knows they were filed. Not presumably God did. Uh, they didn't believe the fact that he's, you know, omnipotent. Um, but but that means he should have been found. He's in the county. <laughs> exactly. Uh, as I get into the religious digressions here. But, um, the, uh, but basically, that is, is it has to be found. So to the extent that you say, okay, Roblox is a target of this lawsuit. Yeah, they've been served. That's they've not a problem. Served. You have a registered agent that accepts service in every state. So they've been served. That's not yeah. a big deal. Now, service basically is, is they have to be notified of the lawsuit in a formal way that says, now you know you have to deal something with it. When you guys see those things on TV where someone hands someone a paper and says, you've been served, that's one of the few things that actually is pretty accurate. Yeah, it's pretty accurate. They basically show up and hand you the paper. And like, you, you do have to sometimes hire a special process service to chase down people who know they're about to be sued yeah. and are evasive and elusive. Now, in most cases, for a big corporation, what they have is they have a that's lawyer somewhere. A you just yeah. send it to the specific lawyer, and that sort of meets the criteria. You're required service. to maintain a registered yeah. agent in any state where you do business, specifically so you can be served with lawsuits yeah. in that state. Now, once you have been served with a lawsuit, there's an important thing that you now have to do. You must file the answer. You have to answer the lawsuit. Now, the, the thing about this is, and the thing to keep in mind, once you have been served with a lawsuit, if you fail to answer, what happens? Default judgment. You lose. Yes, well, you lose. The judge will try. They'll be like, are you sure you're not going to answer this? Uh, typically, they'll grant you. If, if you come back later and say, oh, hey, I just got this. It's been 45 days. Or, uh, you know, if you're like a single litigant and not a corporation, basically, if you're just an individual person doesn't really understand the court system, you'll get a lot of leash here. You'll get a lot of leeway. Uh, the court will bend over backwards to avoid a, a default judgment. Um, and, and really, the other party usually has to move for a default judgment for failure to answer. And even then, if you answer late, it can often be set aside to yeah. resume the lawsuit. But if you just never, ever do anything, you will eventually have a default judgment taken against you, which means the plaintiff wins because the defendant failed to show up and defend themselves. Yeah. Not that you were right as the plaintiff, just that there's no contest. Yeah, and that's a really cool thing. And it's one of the things that a lot of people don't have. And Ben used exactly the specific word, legal word, no contest. Um, one of the, the issues, and you'll see it occasionally in legal dramas, 
you can plead, and when you plead, you know, do you plead, what do you plead, and they tell you the question, you can plead guilty, not guilty, or no contest. Um, you rarely see it in legal dramas, you do occasionally. No contest is, I am not challenging the statement. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I did it, but I am not, I refuse to challenge the statement. There's also uh, a weird fourth one where you say, I don't think that I did it, but I do agree that you have enough evidence that you probably win. <laughs> yeah, it's some of this kind of same kind of thing. So what, what you basically bump into, and again, the real key of what I want to get at here with it, is once this has been served upon you, if you do not answer it, if you do not say, I didn't do it in some way, or even say, I did do it, you lose. Yeah. So, yes, the court will bend over backwards to give you the opportunity to do that, <clears throat> but you do have to do it. And if you fail to do it, you lose. The judgment can then be entered, and the sheriff can go start attaching assets. If they yeah. can find anything that belongs to you in the county, or you can yeah. register the judgment in a foreign court or whatever they want to do. So and a lot of times what you, you lose is the damages they ask for, yeah. which oftentimes are extreme. They could be yes. outrageous. They almost always plead the minimum, at least the minimum damages for the jurisdiction. So, like federal diversity, it's what seventy-five grand, I think. Yeah, still, may, may have gone up since then. That's that's my law school. There is number. federal jurisdiction, which means to go to the federal courts, you have to have a controversy of a certain minimum dollar yeah. amount for those courts to get involved. Now, in this case, it wouldn't matter because it's copyright. So that's federal law, no, regardless. Federal law, anyway. if there's, I mean, you, there well, no it doesn't damages. have to be. It could be state law, but in this case, almost certainly yeah. is. Yeah, this one is. <laughs> Uh, so part of your answer is to, is to, one, respond to all of the assertions of fact. The lawsuit has to lay out the fact. You have to say why you're entitled to relief, what you know, what your claims are, what your causes are, uh, and you have to explain why you're entitled to win on those. And then the other side responds and basically denies it all almost every time. They usually say, uh, denied because I don't have enough information to say whether it's true or not. They usually say, well, usually what they put it is a statement of fact, statement of law, is not the way you see it. Yeah. Statement of fact is I believe the following fact is true, e.g., Roblox runs this platform, the Roblox yeah. company owns this platform. That's a statement yeah. of fact. You know, Roblox you usually say, we, we admit that we operate a set of experiences, blah, 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 and we deny the allegation yeah. to the extent of anything else that it says. Yeah, a statement of law is that because of all the following facts, under the law, the following is yeah. true, and I'm entitled to whatever because Which they say we don't have to answer because that's not an assertion of fact. Fact, yeah. And so basically when you respond back is you basically say, okay, yes, the facts either are true or not. So the example would be is, you know, I can make an assertion of fact that said, you know, you know, my, my co-host in this podcast is Ben Siders. That is a, you know, assertion of fact by me. I would have little choice but to tragically admit to that. Yeah, you have that. to admit to that, you know, it's what it is. So again, you can admit, you can deny, you can admit in part, you can say sort of what it is. What you usually see in these is all like the basic stuff, like which party is which, where you're incorporated, what you do. Yeah. That, that's all generally agreed upon and almost everything else is always denied. Yeah, and the reason that you usually have sort of these general agreed upons, and, and most of the reason you have to admit this stuff, is you have to basically say the parties are correct in the lawsuit. In yeah, order to I mean, to say that the court has jurisdiction, too. There's yeah. not just jurisdiction over the subject matter, there's personal jurisdiction. Did you file in the right court? Yeah, and these are all sort of things, again, when we're talking about the idea, to keep in mind what all these sort of answers and things with this, we are already into the minutia of legal filing in conjunction with these things. Recognizing that somebody can file a piece of paper saying, I am suing God for whatever reason. Yeah. You know, I am suing this person for whatever reason. That is a lawsuit that has to be resolved. <clears throat> Once it is served, so it's been provided to the person on the other side, they have to answer these things. And they have to answer them truthfully. There's there's grounds they have to do it. Now, they can't just say, this lawsuit is frivolous and I don't have to do anything else. No, they actually have to answer. Yeah. And so they go through and they do the answers. Now, there's also one other thing when you do file your answer, you usually submit other things in conjunction. So you usually say, I deny the, the findings of law. Yeah. But you also say there even are if, other yeah. findings of law. You also say, even if all this is true, I'm still not responsible. And this is what we call the affirmative defenses. Yeah. The affirmative defenses are basically um, a number of reasons why, even if the plaintiff is right, you should not be held responsible. We talked about this in our last uh, episode. Self-defense is a common one in a tort or criminal law situation. But there are a huge number of other affirmative defenses. Uh, and what typically happens in a lawsuit is that the defendant raises every single affirmative defense that can possibly apply, whether or not they think it actually is relevant to the case yep. at all. Now, there's a reason for that. Usually it's because if they don't raise it right at the beginning, they're prohibited from raising it later. <laughs> oh, and, and often they're not actually, but just the way lawyers practice, you, you put them all in up front that you can think of so that if you come along, because to, to amend your answer, you have to usually get leave. I mean, most I think most procedures allow at least one uh, amendment uh, as a matter of right, but there are procedures to, to, get, to get your petition amended, so you may as well get it all in up front. You know, take your best shot right away. Yeah, and this is, uh, again, I think one of the things like, you know, talking about, we're, we are throwing a lot of legal terms around here. And I don't know if you guys have caught this in conjunction with any of the lawyers listening. You probably haven't even noticed it. But, you know, Ben, sorry about the you need to have leave. Leave means oh, that yeah, the judge yeah. lets you do it. Yeah. 
So it's the judge does not have to let you do it. The judge has to let you do it. Now, will the judge usually let you do it? Yes. Most judges are basically like, we're not going to hold the rules really, really rigid. But Unless it seems about, like you're abusing them. If yeah. you're on like your ninth or tenth leave because you're clearly not taking the lawsuit seriously and just screwing around, at some point the judge is going to lose patience with that, yeah. especially if uh, if, if you're, you've got a lawyer involved who should know better. Now, that's where we started. We started with Dungeons & Dragons and the skit about rules lawyering. <laughs> this is what we're talking about. You know, we talk about rules lawyering, the idea of, well, the book says literally you cannot do this or you must do these in order. You know, this is, that is a zero cast, not a, not a, not a, a, a you know, negative cast. You know, those kind of things that you get into it, that's rules lawyering, and that's what we have in conjunction with it. So we talk about those ideas of gaming and the idea of rules lawyering. What we're seeing in some sense is this idea of the formal answer, the formal sort of response in conjunction with this, is a start of the argument of rules lawyering. And it's lawyering. That's what lawyers do. They basically come in and say, here, I have presented this formal complaint. Now the response is, I have presented this formal answer. It has met everything. It has provided everything you need to do. There are requirements of how that's supposed to be filed, what it has to meet as minimums. But there's also the, if you don't do it in a certain way, things can be used against you. So again, if you don't submit an affirmative defense, in certain cases, you may be prohibited from offending it later, unless the judge lets you. Now, will the judge let you? In most cases, yes. Yeah. But they're not obligated to do so. And, and those are the kind of things you bump into. This is what a lot of litigation really is. And I think it's, it's on TV, you think of litigation as going to court, but let's, let's say you know the total amount of, of, of work involved in a litigation is, is 100 units of work. How much of that time is actually spent in court? Probably less than one. Yeah, you know? I guess it would be like you know maybe one to three. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just sort the of majority of what you're doing is, is knowing these rules, knowing, knowing how they work, uh, and then knowing how to position your case and the facts and, and to get, get your, your best foot forward uh, and, and to understand what your opponent's going to do, too. So uh, this, is, this is why litigation is expensive. There's a lot going on. We haven't gotten into the actual substantive law yet, just the process of saying what, yeah. what your claims are. The first two filings, the first one by each party. Yeah, we're not even into discovery. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about some of these defenses. There's like 25 that they asserted, yeah. which is not unusual at, at all. Um, so let's talk about a couple of them because if this is one of those things that if you don't understand the law and you read this, it looks ridiculous. Yeah, it does look really ridiculous. And and these are the kind of things where a lot of times when you also get into sort of a legal analysis, I would say by lay people, um, you often get in people where they read through this and go, this is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, why on earth are they asserting this? The very first one, the very first defense is that the plaintiffs, the music industry, uh, their claims are, are barred or you know no good because they don't actually own the music. Yeah. Okay, so why, why would they say that? Clearly somebody owns this music. Uh, Universal Music is named. They own like a third of the music in the world, right? So so why would they say that? Well, the answer is some of the songs that have been uploaded, uh, you know, they don't list every single song here. Normally yeah. you would say, oh, here's at least, you know, here's all the songs that were in Friends. There's too much. Too much. So they haven't listed it. So what this defense is saying is at least some of these songs don't actually belong to these plaintiffs, and so we shouldn't be held responsible yeah. to these plaintiffs for what's happened to them. Some of them they may also simply not, because again, they don't hold or hold the exclusive rights. Those rights may not even exist. I mean, that's yeah. another sort of you know element of it is that you know they don't own or hold them because there actually are no rights there. This is something which has been put into the public domain, for example. Yep. Their second defense is probably one of the better ones. Uh, the DMCA, which we just talked about, uh, prohibits them uh, from collecting because the safe harbor provision shields Roblox from liability. Yeah. Which it does. This is a classic affirmative defense. I mean, yeah. and I think this is one of the things when we say, sort of, what is an affirmative defense? That's what this is, which is if we did it, we are shielded from yeah. liability. So even to the extent we did it, we are not the correct defendant, so we can't yeah. find anything against us. Go find the correct defendant, go find all those people who actually did it. Uh, the third one is that the claims are barred by, oh, this is going to be fun, equitable estoppel, <laughs> waiver, I'm not even going to pronounce the third one, it's French, unclean hands, ratification, latches, that's L-A-C-H-E-S, not, not with a T, and or other related equitable doctrines. All right, let's do, a, let's do a minute on equity versus <laughs> oh, law. Boy, okay. okay. This is a great third affirmative defense because th this is this is literally throwing the skins into spaghetti at the wall and seeing if it sticks. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so we have, there's, there's two sort of, I don't know how to explain this. You have the law and you have equity. The law is what we usually think of as the law. Yeah. Equity is is a sort of a set of remedies that, in olden days, is what we called courts of chancery. Yeah. I think only Delaware still makes that distinction. The way I've always heard it is, the best way to describe sort of what it is, is it's the letter versus the spirit of the law. Yeah. So the idea is the law is that a legal remedy is the letter of the law. Yeah. The it's really different than remedies. Is the spirit yeah. of the law. So remedies at law are damages. If yeah. if you win the lawsuit, then you get damages. The person owes you money. So for example, Kirk and I have a contract. I agree I'm going to sell him a cow for $100. Uh, 
Uh, he says, okay, he sends me the hundred bucks. I, I have a chicken chip to him. Yeah. Okay, well, you're supposed to get a cow. So now I owe him a cow. And if it turns out that it costs Kirk a thousand dollars to replace that cow, his damages are nine hundred bucks. I don't actually have to go get him a cow. He gets the damages. He gets the $900. He gets the difference between what he was expecting to get yeah. and what he actually got. That's the legal remedy. The equitable remedy is you have to give me a cow. Yeah. Courts um, do not like <laughs> equitable remedies. Yeah. And they don't because of the fact that they're very, they, they have a problem in the fact that they oftentimes enforce sort of um, something that we kind of look at and say, in some sense, is unjust, for lack of a better term. We don't like ordering people to do specific things. Yeah. Taking your money is one thing. Saying, you you person have to do this thing. You have to go wash their car. You have to go buy them a cow. No, no, no. You go get your car washed, and you can get your, get your money back from them. But we just, uh, it's it's a long history in this country of, of discomfort with ordering people around. So yeah. A good example of actually sort of where equitable remedies can be a problem, and actually technically legal remedies, if you jump all the way back to Hammurabi's raw laws, the first written law that ever mm -hmm. was, one of those laws is if somebody is attempted to, I think, break into a house, they are to be killed and buried at the entranceway of the house. Well, if I own the house and I don't want them there, what do I do? That's yeah. the idea of an equitable remedy. So you kind of look at it and say, the legal remedy is they have to be buried there. You kind of look at it and say, well, the equity, equitable remedy, what's the purpose of this, is that they're executed. That's the whole idea. Why yeah. do we really have to bury them? So the idea is, okay, the equitable remedy is we're just going to kill them and go bury them somewhere else. Another reason courts don't like equitable remedies is... Um, in the United States, at least, there is no real mechanism for courts to enforce their rulings. They rely in large part on voluntary compliance. Uh, we don't have court police. You have bailiffs and security officers and things like that. But the federal courts, for example, don't, I mean, you have the marshal service, but um, they, there's, there's nobody to go out and, like, order people around. We don't have the, the so-called jackbooted thugs. So uh, in, in the absence of that, courts are very, very judicious, uh, pardon the pun, about when they uh, issue orders to make people do things. Because if somebody defies them, their ability to force compliance is somewhat limited. Yeah. So they really, you know, our entire judicial system relies in a large part on voluntary compliance. Uh, and this, this power has been wielded very carefully over the course of the centuries to the point where the Supreme Court can issue a decision that the vast majority of the country disagrees with, but we all voluntarily obey anyway. Yeah, and that's the thing with this, what we have here, and I think this is going to this as I being the third defense and being the defense of an equitable remedy. We talked about the idea of equitable remedies, the idea of forcing them to do something. This is sort of the turn side of that, which is this basically is equitable the, defenses. Equitable defenses are basically saying, look, even if what we did was legally wrong, it's just unfair to enforce it against us for any reason. And that's why I say this to sort of throw this together yeah. and see what sticks. Because they put all of them in this one defense. <laughs> yeah, so let's go through a couple of these. <laughs> the first one is equitable estoppel. So estoppel, um, the word stop should give you a clue what that means. Equitable estoppel basically says, uh, you sat around too long and, and let us do things, uh, and, and we've reasonably relied upon your inaction, and you can't wait until it's to our great disadvantage to, to complain. Yeah. So the classic law school example is, I'm sitting outside uh, next to my car, and somebody walks up and says, hey, I'll wash your car for you for 10 bucks," and I don't answer. And they say, okay, I'm going to do it, and I don't answer. And they wash my car. And I watch them do it. And they get done, and they ask for the $10, and I say, I never agreed to that. Well, I did sit silently by and watch them do it. When I could have at any point spoken up and said, no, uh, that's not fair. Um, and it's also unjust enrichment plays into that, too. And I've gotten a benefit I haven't paid for. Yeah. Uh, you know, So there's there's a lot going on there. Um, waiver is an argument that uh, I've, 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 through action or inaction, released uh, or implicitly released my claims and said, you know, suggested I'm not going to enforce them. Unclean hands. Unclean hands is basically the it's it's the other party has at fault uh, yeah. has some fault in conjunction with this. You most commonly see this sort of thing in conjunction with tort um, and the idea of what's called assumption of risk. So yes, I may have given you an unsafe situation, but you chose to do it anyway, yeah. and you knew it was unsafe. So the idea is is sort of assumption of risk. Unclean hands here is basically saying we both got uh, both parties have engaged in behavior that's that's unfair. It's unfair to the and other, and so the, yeah. the, neither one is entitled to come in and get equitable. It yeah. doesn't affect the legal part, but neither one can get equitable. The good way to think about this is in a contract. It's basically saying we both violated the contract. You can't now say that I'm the one who violated it more than you did. Yep. Ratification basically means that you have done something to affirm or say that this is fine. The opposite of waiver. Waiver That's says you did, you did nothing to stop it. Ratification says actually you did tell yep. me it was okay. Uh, latches, you know, I don't fully understand the difference between latches and equitable estoppel. Latches is basically, you've, we've waited too long to assert your claims, and at this point we're at such an unfair disadvantage that you can't, you can't do that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of a good law school example of that. But I've always understood the difference between latches and equitable estoppel. It's kind of being equitable estoppel is... 
it's you didn't treat it fair in the amount of time you spent. Yeah. Whereas latches is you kind of didn't meet the the accepted legal requirements of what it is. To yeah, do yeah. Latches is basically had you, basically you knew about this before. Had you acted before, we would not be in as deep of a hole. So yeah. you know, you you knew that we were uh, you know digging a hole in your backyard. Didn't do anything about it. And you could have stopped us when it was $100 of damages. You waited until it was a million dollars worth of damages, and now you're complaining because you want more money? That's not fair. You could have stopped yeah. us earlier. Yeah, and the kind of thing behind it is that you kind of, you ran up the bill, so to speak. So yeah, or you let it. it get rung up and then yeah. waited until the other party was in a really bad position to assert it. Or, uh, you know, you waited until the evidence to prove the defenses was, was destroyed for some reason, like in a car accident or something like that. Um, so we're not going to go through a ton of these. We'll go through a couple more because there are some interesting ones here. Uh, copyright misuse. Um, that's an interesting one. I don't see that very often. It's basically a, a borderline antitrust argument that the monopoly, monopoly in the music is being abused in some way. I don't expect that one to stand up. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting story. One of the ones I want to pick on here is the statute of limitations has run. Um, yes, is, this yeah. is a good one. This is, what, Kurt, what is the statute of limitations for copyright? The statute right? of limitations is that you have a certain window of time in which you have to state to the court that the copyright was violated. You have to file your case before you have to file your within case. a certain amount of time. For copyright, it's three yep. years. Yep, or else your case is barred, period, end of story. So if, if Kirk ran out and published a million copies of, I always go to Harry Potter, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, <laughs> five years ago, uh, and everybody knew it, and nobody did anything, he can't be sued for it now. It's too late. Yeah, because it's not within three years. It has to be within three years. Uh, um, now, if, if you listen to one of our prior episodes about the Led Zeppelin lawsuit, you may be wondering, how is it that Led Zeppelin is getting sued now over Stairway to Heaven? Well, because it just got played today. New infringement. Exactly. Um, and that's where you get interesting things with statute of limitations. Is both it was played today and we get it. There's also a lot of times uh, statute of limitations involves discovery of it happening. Yeah. When does the cause of action accrue? Yep. So basically, it's, I can't be known. The statute of limitations doesn't run if I don't realize you were violating something. You know, I didn't, if I didn't know you were making those copies of my book, you were you know, distributing them in some way that I couldn't see you know, and stuff like that in secret. I had no way of knowing it. You can't say, well, I've been doing that for, you know, I did it five years ago, so I'm, you're not entitled to collect because I hid it purposely from you and was very, very good at my thing up until now. And so now that it's run, hey, guess what? I screwed you. <laughs> um, there's nothing you can do about it. No, it kind of comes from sort of knowledge of the event. So it's, it's very, again, a very common defense to assert statute of limitations. Now, why would they assert this? More than likely, the, pro the product has been up longer than three yeah, years. They want to cut off all of the uploads from more than three years ago, basically, yeah. and say it's too late for those. Now, that may also tie into who is the correct plaintiff here. Remember, they asserted that you may not own the rights in those songs. Well, we're only going to matter what songs were uploaded in the last three years or played in the last three years. Now, we say uploaded, that's not necessarily the standard. It could be played. Yep. So somebody actually listened to the song. We're going to jump ahead to number 17. Uh, this defense <laughs> is that the plaintiff's claims are barred either in a whole or in part because the users have the rights necessary to use the works at issue in plaintiff's claims. I think they're trying to wrap in fair use here, although I think there's a separate fair use allegation. But they're basically saying at least some of this music, these people have the right to use it this way. Yeah. Now, some of that could be implied license. Uh, yeah. So they actually have they also implied allege. license. Yeah. You know, so, but some of it could also be, hey, I posted up, you know, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony that I played. You know, it's me playing yeah. it. You it's know, it's my performance, and the composition is in the public domain. The composition is in the public domain. So even though you think it's the London Symphony Orchestra, no, it's actually not. It's me. <laughs> and then we're going to talk about the 23rd defense really quickly here. Merely making musical <laughs> works available to Roblox's users does not constitute infringement. So this is a claim that the causes of action don't even lie because what they've done isn't infringement at all. Now, I have to admit, I actually really like this defense. I and mean, the reason I like this defense in conjunction is because I think this is a, a perfect example of what is copyright infringement. The issue with this is copyright infringement makes, it is making a copy. The argument here is, while the, the, the material is available, I didn't make the copy. Somebody else individually mm -hmm. chose to make the copy. This was Napster's making available defense. Yes. That uh, this shouldn't even be a copyright infringement. And quite frankly, in Napster's case, I think there was something to it. Uh, the idea that basically says, all I did was make it available to make copies. I didn't actually force you or get you to make the copy. So a good example of this is, just because I made the photocopier does not mean I committed copyright infringement because there are a thousand ways the photocopier can be used which do not commit copyright infringement. The fact that you did commit copyright infringement doesn't make me liable for your action. It's your own action. But basically it says the individual person is responsible for what they did. So one interesting point uh, I want to raise before we have to wrap up here. 
One of the causes of action that I did not see asserted, uh, maybe it's because the law hasn't taken effect yet, is the recent uh, intentional pirate streaming website law, uh, which was passed with uh, a, a big bit of omnibus legislation uh, over this uh, last uh, year in connection with COVID relief. But they squeezed in a very short law that added criminal sanctions to providing a screen streaming service whose purpose is to facilitate copyright infringement. Um, often lawyers will kind of throw the kitchen sink uh, yeah. in, in lawsuits. I kind of like that this one didn't. Uh, my personal preference, and there's no right or wrong answer here, but my personal preference is to really just pick a couple of good causes of action and not have 20 different claims out there. Let's just make things more expensive and most of them get dismissed. But that's one. I, I don't know if it would apply here or not. Probably not. But um, it's interesting that they didn't even uh, didn't even raise it. So Yeah, and again, the other thing with it is, you see, they did not they presented these defenses. They presented additional defenses as well. So basically, like, you know, there's things like, while we may have done it, you know, even though it's not an affirmative defense, there's no damages against us, you know, stuff like that, you know, going to arise as these things. The real key with this, I think we've gone through it. We have a hard stop, which is why we're kind of, you know, trying to finish yeah. our, our end here. But what we've always done is walk through here is basically just say, what we've now had is the, the plaintiff in this case, the music industry has said, you did the following things, that's the assertion of facts. There is law that says you can't do those. The defense has been, okay, we either agree or disagree with the facts. We presumably disagree with all of the assertions of law. In addition, there are all these other reasons under the law that we're not supposed to be responsible. That's as far as this case has gone. And we've just spent an hour going through, not even everything that was asserted, well, we barely scratched the surface. We didn't discuss any of the factual allegations, really. I mean, none yeah. of that. But that's the idea where lawsuits can get very complicated very fast. And that's and this one's pretty straightforward. You've got an online platform that's uploading music. Yeah. You know, it's easy to understand. And the music industry pretty clearly owns rights at least some music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, anyway, so that's sort of a, a march through uh, sort of the anatomy of a lawsuit. The next steps here are that the plaintiffs will need to file a reply. Uh, and then, this is responding to the affirmative defenses yeah. and why the affirmative defenses are not accurate. Or and, and possibly if a counterclaim was filed, which I don't think it was, but if a counterclaim was filed, they'd also have to answer the counterclaim, yeah. and then the counterclaimant slash defendant would also have to file <laughs> a counterreply. A, a counterclaim is when you say not only is did I not do what you asserted I did, you're the wrongdoer in this case. And after that, the court will uh, issue a, a discovery order and we'll proceed to uh, collect documents, take depositions, and then uh, shenanigans will ensue. So <laughs> we'll keep an eye on this. It'll be interesting to see how this goes. Uh, but this case may, may may blaze new trails in terms of uh, copyright law and theories of vicarious and uh, contributory infringement. So we got a hard stop. we got to go. Uh, we've got more content coming for you. Um, don't have a specific schedule in mind yet, but uh, you guys have been killing it on the downloads this month, so we appreciate that. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Or play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. 